here in Somerset this evening. Thank you, Pastor Bill, for your kindness to have me here and, uh, and just experience with you. And my wife, Jody is here with me to experience uh, the, the wonder that the Lord has brought about here in such a short time for this church. It's really amazing. And uh, this beautiful facility, it's a pleasure to be a part of the dedication of this building. And we do pray with you that it would be used uh, to full extent to the glory of God and for reaching this community uh, in, with the gospel of Christ. Uh, may God bless all of your efforts here uh, to, to, to spread out in the community and, and share the gospel. And uh, may people be brought to faith and grow in faith as they come and hear the, the word preached. You have a good pastor. You know that, don't you? And uh, I mean, boy, I tell you, I, I love Bill and Retta, and I know you are getting fed well from this man in ways that you wouldn't be able to find in most churches. Very few churches have what this church offers to you. So praise be to God and take advantage of it, and, uh, and may God uh, work in all of you in ways that would bring honor to him and, uh, and, and build up the saints. Well, this evening, it's my pleasure to talk with you about divine providence and uh, think, think with you about what, some of what the Bible teaches about that. You know, a number of years ago, A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, in his introductory preface to that book, wrote this, that the view of God that is entertained among evangelicals, he said, is so low, so beneath the dignity of God as to constitute idolatry. Now, he wrote that in 1962. And you th think of the years that have passed since then. I don't think things have gotten better. As, as you look across the landscape of uh, conservative Bible-believing churches, <clears throat> at least they profess to be Bible-believing churches, you wonder why they don't preach from the Bible, why people don't read their Bibles, and yet, boy, we uphold the Bible. There is something wrong, isn't there, when in fact we don't really like what the Bible actually teaches. And one, one of the reasons that this has happened is because the culture in which we live is putting such a strong emphasis on the importance of me, the, 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 the cult of self, it is sometimes called, where our human autonomy, our will and our choices and, and what we decide to do is of utmost importance. And you, you all know how this works, don't you? If, if you elevate us, what happens to God? You bring him down. And my friends, we need in this age, as much as ever has been needed in the history of the church, to see again the glory of God for who he is and understand how needy and weak and dependent we are upon him. Do we need to pause for a moment and get the sound fixed or are we okay on that? It's okay, all right, thank you. So this evening, it's my, my goal and hope to be able to help us see a bit more of the greatness and the splendor of God in his providence that will lead us to be humble before him, dependent, looking to him alone for what he alone can provide for us, realizing he is the sovereign ruler over all things. This evening, I want to direct our attention to J Daniel chapter 4. If you would turn there in your Bibles, Daniel chapter 4. And I'd like to read the chapter with you first. We're only going to look, really, focus upon two verses. But those two verses are the culmination of what happens in this whole chapter. And so I think we should read this together. Now, we, we pick up here in the, in the middle of this book of Daniel, uh, where uh, Daniel is with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And this is right around uh, the, the late 500s B.C., uh, before the, the city of Jerusalem is plundered, uh, the temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Just prior to that, Daniel is with Nebuchadnezzar and gives to him a dream that takes place. And let, let's just read the passage and see how it unfolds. Follow along if you would. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation, Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. 
I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom a spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out, and he spoke as follows, "'Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit, lest the beasts flee from it, from under it, and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its root in the ground, with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let them be drenched with the, new, with the dew of heaven, and let them share with the beasts in the grass of the earth.' Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men." This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. And the king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And he replied, my Lord, only if the dream had applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt and whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time have passed over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like the cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with its roots in the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. 
Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and he said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of the heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for, for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Well, what an amazing chapter. And as we'll see in a few moments here, what a, what a glorious display of the providence of God that we'll unpack, especially from verses 34 and 35. Before we do that, let me just lay out for us what providence is so we know what it is we're talking about. At least we can be on the, on the same page together. If you have the handout that was given you this evening in the outline, you see there a brief definition of divine providence that, uh, that I've, I've uh, constructed from many different sources. I think this puts in a nutshell really what divine providence is. Providence, by the way, flows right out of the doctrine of creation. For you see, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he rules over them as well. This is not the God of deism, the God of Thomas Jefferson, for example, who creates the world and then he's hands off. You know, he just winds, winds it up like a watchmaker makes a, makes a watch and just lets it tick away. No, this God, the God of the Bible, is a God who manages, rules, and, and has authority over everything that he has made. So providence flows right out of the doctrine of creation. He makes it, he owns it, and he rules it. All that there is in reality. So here is a statement on divine providence. It has really two parts to it, as we'll see. To say that God is a providential God is to say this, that God continually oversees and directs all things pertaining to the created order in such a way that, number one, he preserves in existence and provides for the creation that he has brought into being, some passages, and two, he governs and reigns supremely over the entirety of the created order in order to fulfill all of his intended purposes in it and through it. Now, if you look at that definition, you see there these two aspects of divine providence. Sometimes they're called providence as preservation and providence as governance. Providence as preservation 
and providence as governance. So God creates the world and he preserves it. He provides for it. He sustains it. He is the one who provides for the lilies of the field, the birds of the air, as Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's the one who provides for us our daily bread. So that's why we pray to him and ask him for that. So God is the one who, who sustains and nourishes and provides for and protects the created order to fulfill all the things that he intends for that created order to do. But he not only does that, but number two, he governs it. God is not only the provider and protector, but he is governor and ruler of all that he has made. He reigns supremely over the entirety of the created order, accomplishing in it all that he has intended and purposed. So providence as preservation and providence as governance are both very important aspects of the Bible's teaching about God's providence. Now, the part that we're going to focus on tonight really is providence as governance, that God does rule over all things. And of course, we see that in Daniel chapter 4, do we not? Goodness, three times we saw in this passage that God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to learn what? You remember it? Look with me again, verse 17. Verse 17, why, why would this come upon Nebuchadnezzar? In order that he would know that... Halfway through the verse, the most high is what? Ruler over how much? The realm of mankind. And he bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. I'm sure that wasn't very pleasant to hear if you were Nebuchadnezzar, the lowliest of men. But nonetheless, God is the one who chooses. Again, we see this stated by God uh, in, in verse 25. Verse 25, uh, that you, you will be driven away from mankind, your dwelling place will be with the beasts and so on. For seven years, that's what that periods of time refers to, for seven years until you recognize what? That the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And again in verse 34, we can't miss it, can we? You will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven years of time will pass until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So here we have the emphasis on God as governor or God as ruler, the one who sovereignly reigns over all that he has made. And my, Nebuchadnezzar learned this. You know, this really happened, my friends. This isn't a a fairy tale. This happened in history that this great, mighty king, Nebuchadnezzar, with one of the the, the greatest kingdoms that has ever been on the earth. You know, the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world, were built under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this this man had vast amounts of, of money and resources and labor and military might. He was a mighty king. And what did God do to humble this man? He put him to pasture, literally, for seven years. Seven years, grazing with the cattle, eating grass. Imagine what he looked like after seven years with his hair growing never combed, his fingernails growing out there in the dirt. Oh, my goodness, what a mangy wreck he must have been of a human being. This great, mighty Nebuchadnezzar, because God wanted him to learn that the Most High reigns, rules, governs the whole of mankind, and he bestows this rulership in nations on whomever he wishes. And by the way, that will be true in November of this year as well. Don't you forget it. Regardless of what you and I think, who you and I think ought to be president, God casts his vote, and whatever he votes wins every time. That includes Hitler. That includes Stalin. That includes Mao Zedong. You know, you've got to realize God has purposes that are difficult for us to comprehend, but he rules. He puts in place those whom he chooses. This is the God of the Bible. Okay, now, what I'd like us to do is look in particular at verses 34 and 35 
to see there some of the aspects of divine providence that we, we can cull from this very brief statement. I mean, this is an amazing statement on divine providence spoken by a pagan king. And normally you would think, well, why, why are you going to pay attention to what a pagan king says about God? Ah, this pagan king is a chastened, humbled, corrected pagan king who has now come to see that the God of Israel, in fact, is the true God. He recognizes that he is the one who reigns over all things. And so what he reflects now is the lesson that he has learned after seven years of being put out of commission, grazing with the cattle. His reason has returned. He now is able to comprehend who God truly is. Look again with me at verses 34 and 35. We'll read just those two verses. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Okay, let's look at these. There are five aspects here of divine providence that I think are just really important for us to see. The first one is in some ways the easiest one to see. It's right on the surface uh, at, at, the, it, at the beginning of what he says in verse 34. He says, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. So what, what characterizes the providence of God in the Bible It is an everlasting providence. It is always the case that God rules over the realm of mankind. He rules over the created order that he has made. He not only sustains it and provides for it and protects us within it, he is the one who governs everything that takes place. He he always is the governor and the ruler of his created order. Now, I want you to see, for each one of these five elements, I'm going to invoke what sometimes I call canonical witness. That is, looking at other places in the canon so that you can see this truth isn't taught just here. Now, what I can't do is take you to all the places in the canon where these truths are taught. We would be here for a couple weeks if we did that. But I will take you to one place, one other place besides here, so you can see, in fact, yeah, this is what the Bible teaches. So, on on the characteristic that God's providence, his dominion, is an everlasting dominion, take a look also with me at Psalm 93, if you would, please. Psalm 93. It's a beautiful psalm, and it begins with these words. Notice the emphasis of what, what is proclaimed at the very outset. The Lord, what? reigns. He reigns. He is a God who rules. He is a God who governs. He is the one in charge. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Now look at verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So here is again another passage that helps us see indeed this dominion of God, this rulership and reign of God is an everlasting reign. He is the one who is clothed in strength forever. I mean, this is so encouraging, my friends, to realize this is true for whatever problem you face tomorrow. That same God reigns. He is the one who rules over everything, including the problems that you have. So we can go to him with confidence because nothing can be, uh, uh, nothing can thwart God from accomplishing his purposes, as we'll see. He is the everlasting Lord. Secondly, back to Daniel chapter 4, after he has said his kingdom is an everlasting uh, kingdom and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, then verse 35 all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Now, now, that's an amazing statement, isn't it? All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And you might wonder, in what sense does he mean that? 
Does he mean, I don't care about those inhabitants of the earth? They mean nothing to me? Is that what this is about? Well, surely it is not. I mean, goodness, this, this is the God who created the earth, who, who, who formed the nations to be upon the earth, who has sent his son, we know after this, to die for those nations. John 3.16, that I know your pastor has preached on recently. Yes, God cares about those nations. So when he says all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, we should not conclude from that statement that he doesn't care about the nations or the inhabitants of the earth. So in what sense are they nothing? Nothing. Look at the next phrase. But he does according to his will. Does that help you get it? In what sense are, there, are they nothing? They are unable to contest the will of God, to challenge the will of God. They cannot keep God from doing what he chooses to do. How much power do we have to withstand the power of God? And the answer is we have nothing that can withstand the power of God. Because he is omnipotent. He is, he is the God who reigns over all and cannot be challenged or contested. Now look at another passage with me that has a similar meaning to it. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, verses 15 to 17, we read this. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. It's not very flattering, is it? I mean, what, 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 is, uh, what is the common meaning of drop from a bucket, speck of dust on the scales? Those are both things that are tiny, puny, small, insignificant, inconsequential, right? So the nations, he says, that is the totality of humanity considered together are like what before God? A drop from a bucket, a speck of dust on the scales. Now you keep reading because you realize as you keep reading here, the description of us, the nations, actually gets worse, not better as we keep reading. Keep, keep with me. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations, verse 17, here we are back again. The collective totality of humanity considered together are what before God? All the nations are as nothing before him. You can't get worse than that, can you? It gets worse. Keep reading. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him they are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. We have hit rock bottom. Now, uh, you know, my, my friends, this does not play well in the self-esteem-saturated culture in which we live. Where we, we are told to think much of ourselves. And again, just think, remember what happens here. We think much of ourselves, what happens to God? We bring him down. Here's a text that reminds us we are to think much, much, much of God, his greatness, his glory, his majesty, his power, his sufficiency, realizing what in the world can we, can the whole world, in, in what way can we challenge God? In what way, in what way can we contest God? His power, and the answer is we are less than nothing and meaningless in doing that because God has all power and resource at his disposal. He speaks, and it is done. This is the God of the Bible. So his providential dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it is an uncontested dominion. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will. Now the third characteristic, back to Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. The third characteristic, but he does according to his will, how extensively? In the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. 
Now, heaven and earth, whenever you read that couplet in the Bible, what should you bring to mind right away? Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is a way of saying God created everything that is created. I mean, obviously, God is not created, but he created everything else. So the heavens and the earth represent all created reality. So here is this statement now in verse 35, but he does according to his will in the host of the heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. Therefore, his providential dominion is universal. There is no place where it is not exercised. You know, it's very interesting to, to, to realize that this was not the view of the ancient Near Eastern religions that surrounded Israel uh, at the time that, I, that, that uh, uh, Daniel was writing this and the other prophets were writing. The, the common view among the ancient Near Eastern religions was that different gods had different jurisdiction over different areas, regional despots, as it were. Sort of like, I mean, I, I liken it to when you drive across the, the interstate and you move from one state to another, you may not even notice that you've passed a state line, but you're now in a different jurisdiction, and you have to obey the laws of that jurisdiction. And sometimes the speed limit changes, uh, the speed limit changes, and you better pay attention to that because you're not in this state anymore, you're in this state. Well, it was something like that in the ancient Near East. They believed that as you traveled, you would move into different territories where different gods ruled. Uh, one uh, example of a, of a story in the Bible where that particular truth is important to see is the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that story? And, uh, you know, Elijah uh, prayed, and there was no rain for the, this, this long period of time. And he challenged the prophets of Baal. He said, build an altar and call, call on Baal to come and consume the altar. And, uh, and, and they, they did that, and they called upon him, and nothing happened. And then Elijah called upon God he, after he doused that altar with barrels of water, and God came down and consumed the altar. Now, if that episode had happened in Jerusalem, the, 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 uh, the prophets of Baal would have said, well, so what? Yahweh is God in Jerusalem. But it didn't happen in Jerusalem. It happened up uh, at uh, uh, <laughs> Mount Carmel. Thank you. Just slipped, slipped my mind. It happened at Mount Carmel. Thank you very much. And, and that was, according to the, the prophets of Baal, that was Baal's territory. He was supposed to be God there. So here, here it happened that Yahweh showed up and Baal did not, indicating, in fact, God is the territorial God over how much? All of the earth, over heaven and earth. Look with me at one other canonical witness passage, if you would. Uh, Psalm 135. Psalm 135, we could read a longer section, but let's just read verses 5 to 7. Verses 5 to 7. The providential dominion of God is universal. Psalm 135, verse 5, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our God, our Lord, is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. How extensively? in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes the lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasures. So God is the one who has universal reign over all things on land and sea, in heaven and earth. There is no place where God is not ruler, sovereign governor of all, the tra of, of all that takes place. So God has an everlasting dominion, an uncontested dominion, a universal dominion. Now back to Daniel 4, verse 35 again. Fourth, he has a victorious dominion, victorious. We read on. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And here it comes now. And no one can ward off his hand. That is, no one can keep God's hand from being extended. He will accomplish what he chooses. He cannot be defeated. He will be victorious in this. We cannot stop 
the hand of God from doing what he chooses to do. Now look with me real quickly back at Deuteronomy 32, 39. Deuteronomy 32, 39. For a, another witness of this from elsewhere in the Bible. And this one is from Moses. In the song of Moses that he taught the people of Israel to sing before they went into the promised land. And it's a reminder, this whole, so, this whole song of Moses is a reminder of the faithfulness of God and the disobedience of the people and, and to call them to look to God and obey him to receive his blessing. And here now toward the end of the psalm, uh, we, song, I'm sorry, we read this, these words in verse 39. Moses, God through Moses says this, see now that I, I am he and there is no God besides me. I am the one who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. You see it? So God's hand will be extended. He will accomplish what he chooses. And look how extensive this is. This is one of the verses in the Bible of many verses that I have given the name to of spectrum texts, spectrum texts passages because they indicate the full spectrum of life uh, that, that, that God oversees and has control of. He is the one, God says, I am the one who puts to death as well as gives life. I am the one who wounds as well as heals. Now, most of us in here can accept readily the positive side of that ledger, right? God is the one who gives life. Amen. God is the one who heals. Amen. What about the negative side? Do you realize this is God speaking of himself? Sobering, isn't it? I mean, who are we to say, oh, no, God, you can't do that? My goodness, the audacity of that. This is God speaking. Uh, again, verse 39, see now that I, I am he. There is no God besides me. Let me tell you what I'm like. And, he, and God says, I am the one who, and the first thing he names is the negative side. I am the one who puts to death and gives life, who wounds and who heals. So we realize God has control over every aspect of life, both sides of the spectrum, as it were. All the good and all the bad that takes place in life, God has absolute control over both of those. His hand accomplishes whatever he chooses, and it includes everything that happens in life. Job 42, I just had to include this also. This is the only one that I had two witnesses, as it were, but I just wanted to include this because Job learned this about the negative side of things. Job experienced all of this suffering that came from Satan. I mean, you re read the early chapters of Job, and you realize Satan is the one who who brought this devastation to his family, killed his children, killed his flocks, his herds, and so on. And Satan is the one who brought boils upon his body. But when you come to the end of the book of Job, look at verse 11. Then all of his brothers, this is Job 42, verse 11. Then all of Job's brothers and his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and ate bread with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him. Now look at this for all of the adversities that the Lord had brought upon Job. You see it? So you realize all those things that Satan did were ultimately under the complete governance of God. So much so that if you ask the narrator of the book of Job, who is the one who brought these adversities upon Job? The answer is the Lord did it. My goodness, it's sobering, isn't it, to see that? So this is why Job declares there in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, after he has been humbled by God, chapters 38 to 42 is the humbling of Job by God himself. And Job then says, he answered the Lord and he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So this is the God of the Bible. His providential dominion is triumphant. It is victorious. He always accomplishes whatever he sets his hand to do. Now fifth, back to Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 again. 
Let me read the, read the whole verse and we'll pick up with the very last phrase. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of the heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand and no one can say to him, what have you done? Now this last element I struggled with, thought much about. What is behind this? This statement, no one can say to him, what have you done? And I'm convinced this is not, in the context here, this is not the question of an innocent, believing uh, Christian who is suffering some affliction. And they look up to God with a humble heart and they say, God, what are you doing in this? I am convinced that is not what this verse is about. This is not the humble, innocent question uh, of a believer, but rather it is a question with an accusation attached. What's the accusation? God, you are not right in this. That's what it is. It's a question with a finger pointed at God. What are you doing? That's what this question is. So I think what this is saying then about his providential dominion is that it is righteous. It is righteous. It is always right. God always does what is right. So, you know, this is so important for us to see because after that previous point, he is the one who kills and gives life, wounds and heals. And you realize, boy, God has complete control over everything that happens. The tendency some of us have is when God has control over the negative side, we point our finger at God. And we say, that cannot be right. And it is so inappropriate for us to do so. Because God always does what is right, whether we can understand its rightness or not. We need to be humble before him. Now, here's my canonical witness on this one, is Romans chapter 9. Turn there if you would, Romans chapter 9. Paul is describing the way in which God in his providence has chosen one and not another. And, 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 and through that is, is choosing those whom he will save in the end. He is an electing God, a choosing God. So we pick up at verse 10. Not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born... And had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau have I hated. Now, people reading that and hearing that might conclude, how can this be fair? How can this be just? I mean... Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Before the two were born, before any, either one had done anything good or bad, how can this be just of God? And here is Paul's response, verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. He doesn't explain it. He asserts the truth that God is both sovereign in his choice of whom he will love and whom he will reject and he is just in so doing. If we have difficulty with that, we should be humble before him. Keep reading with me. Verse 14, what should we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be pro proclaimed throughout the whole world. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will then say to me, why does he find fault? For who resists his will? And here's Paul's response. On the contrary, who are you, O man? to answer back to God. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will he? 
Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So here is Paul's explanation that yes, these things can look to us from our natural eyes to be examples that appear to be unjust, unfair. And yet, because God is doing them, who should know better what is right, us or God? He knows best. So back to Daniel 4. This is why Nebuchadnezzar ends this way. No one can say to God, with a finger pointed at him, with an accusation attached, accusing God of injustice. What have you done? It is altogether wrong for us to conclude God has been wrong in what he has done because we cannot understand the counsels of his will, the wisdom of God by which he ordains exactly what he knows is best. So, my friends, we we take great comfort in the fact that he is all-knowing, all-wise, completely holy and just and righteous, completely good and loving. And God, in the fullness of his character, designs what is best, and he accomplishes it. His ways are always right. Well, here we have five characteristics of divine providence that are really stunning, are they not? Uh, Stunning examples of how broad and deep and high and wide is the providential dominion of God. It is an everlasting dominion. Always, God always is God and rules over his world. It is an uncontested dominion. None of us can stand against God. Not even the whole world, all the inhabitants of the earth cannot stand against him. He is unchallenged in his dominion. It is a universal dominion over heaven and earth, over everything that he has made. It is a victorious dominion that accomplishes his will in everything good and bad that happens in human life. And finally, it is a righteous dominion, one in which we can be sure that the God of of the Bible, the God of our Christian faith, will always do what is right. Well, my friends, in conclusion then, we need to hold together these twin twin themes in the Bible that God, in fact, is the sovereign, providential ruler over all things, and we are responsible before him. We live in an age that wants to elevate our will, our freedom, and our responsibility in a way that diminishes God's sovereignty and his providential governance. And that is a mistake that does not reflect the God of the Bible. So rather, we uphold both the biblical teaching we are responsible for the things that we do, and God is sovereign over all of the things that we do. He is the one who reigns, and we bear responsibility before him. Uh, These are two twin pillars, really, that uphold the providence of God that the Bible commends to us. So as we close this evening, I just want you to think for a moment about how important this is to our lives practically, to our lives day by day as we face perhaps a situation at work tomorrow uh, that that, uh, you don't know how to solve this problem or a difficult person you're going to have to be with and and perhaps confront or perhaps financial struggles that, that some of you might have be having, or relational difficulties with with a member of the family. Whatever comes to your mind right now, boy, bring, bring to mind, my friends, you can go to the God, the one and and only true God, who is the providential God who rules over everything that attends to your life and its circumstances, who is able to reach in and change a heart if he so chooses. Do you remember Proverbs 21.1? God can turn the heart of a king the way he does channels of water. Oh my, what a precious promise that is. So you think, boy, that, that, that husband of mine, that wife of mine, that, that, empl- that, that uh, employer of mine is so stubborn. 
God can turn the heart of a king the way he does channels of water. So you pray to a God who is sovereign. You go to a God whom you know hears and can answer and will do what is best. You can be confident because you know his power, his love, and his wisdom. And, and, you, and you can be sure that he will be for you all that you need as you look to him. So know, my friends, he wants you to know that he is the providentially uh, sovereign God of the Bible. He wants you to know this. Why? Because he wants you to trust him, go to him, believe in him, look to him, wait upon him, hope in him. This is what God wants for you. So that as you do that, he's glorified, amen? And we, his people, dependent upon him, looking to him, hoping in him, waiting for him to do what he knows is best, we are strengthened and benefited greatly. So for the glory of God, for the good of us, his people, may God give us a vision for the greatness of his providential dominion. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this evening for the privilege we've had to look at a little glimpse, one short uh, passage of Scripture that has helped us see more clearly the, the extent and the greatness and the glory and the majesty of your sovereign rule over all things. We are so grateful, Lord God, that you not only created this world, but that you rule all that you have made. And that gives us hope, realizing that you will bring all things to the beautiful consummation that you have designed. So, Lord, help us to have trusting, hopeful hearts awaiting that day when everything will be made clear and the fullness of your plan will be completed. Until that day, Lord God, help us to look to you with hope and faith and joy because you are the great and good God that you are. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.